So we're in Genesis 16, and we'll be reading from the ESV. Uh, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abraham, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai, so that after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge me, judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do not do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur, and he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are God of seeing. For she said, Truly, I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Birad. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Thank, ooh. Thank you. Uh, I want to correct Eldon as well. Um, <clears throat> but I just like doing that. <laughs> uh, I, I don't call them the elderly. Uh, because as I become older, this morning someone said to me, how are you, old man? It's like, oh, my word. Uh, as I become older, I prefer the term those of more mature status. Hey, doesn't that sound better? Yeah, amen. Yeah, so watch it, young buck. <sighs> Kids these days, hey? I don't know. Well, uh, I have the privilege of sharing the word with you this morning and uh, I look forward to discovering with you what God has to say to us. Uh, I love scripture. Uh, if you know me at all, you know that's uh, one of the things that I uh, celebrate about life is the, the wonder of scripture. And one of the things I love about scripture that makes it so real and so um, engaging is that it, it doesn't cover up who people are. It presents people warts and all. And so the story of Abraham is a story of a real individual and his journey with God. And you discover that uh, the heroes of faith, Abraham in particular in this context, uh, has moments of greatness, but moments of abject failure. And God is stable through it all. 
See, God is a God of ordinary human beings. That's why there's hope for me. Uh, And Abraham was very much like you and like me in that he had triumphs in his faith, but he also had failures, and they're set side by side. Uh, In uh, chapter 15, uh, last week, we discovered that Abraham was counted as righteous because he believed God when God promised that he would have offspring as numerous as the stars. And here in chapter 16, we discover one of the low points in Sarai and Abram's journey as they try to short-circuit their faith. So with that in mind, I I want to start with sharing a true confession about me. Uh, I have a problem. Now, those of you who know me well are saying, finally, the therapy is working. (laughs) I have a problem. And here's my problem. I hate to wait Do you like waiting? I hate waiting. I hate waiting so much so that I paid $75 for this magic card that lets me sail across the border. It's called the Nexus card. It's the most amazing thing ever. You know, you, you, all you do is pull out this card, and as you're driving across the border, you flash it at this thing that tells you, yes, your card is still working. And then when you hit the booth, all you have to say is, Trump, 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 three times. <laughs> and the guard waves you through. It's the most amazing thing. What I like most about it is that I get to pass all the putzes with passports. <laughs> There's these lines. People, I'm not telling, well, I'm telling you, but you can't have them. They're all out of Nexus cards now. You can have a passport and wait if you want. But I'll go past you in the Nexus line, except that a week and a half ago, I went down to the States to go to Package Express to pick up a part for my motorcycle. Thank you, Jesus, for motorcycles. (laughs) Amen, right? Amen. That's right. Uh, and as I zipped past all the putzes with passports, and there were three lines of them, no one in my Nexus line, I am just chuckling to myself as I pull my card out and prepare to cross the border. And as I'm at that little spot where there's that speed bump before the, you know, there's a stop sign and the speed bump, as I'm ready to, to plow my truck over the speed bump and get just a little bit of air, the guard comes out and puts a cone in front of his booth. And I had to wait. I had to wait five minutes. Five minutes. And you know the worst of it was? All these putzes with passports kept going past me laughing. <laughs> laughing. And then when I finally got up to the booth, I get a, a guard change time or whatever they do. I don't know. Uh, it was somebody new and a younger guy. He decided he would interrogate me not recognizing my Nexus card. I held it up for him. He started asking me questions. I held up the card again. I said, Trump, Trump, Trump. <laughs> I, had to, oh, I, had, I had to open up my truck. It's crazy. I hate waiting. You like waiting? See, here's the problem with waiting is that it causes a problem when it comes to faith. And that's what we will learn this morning, that Abram and Sarai were waiting for God's promises, and they decided that in the waiting, they would short-circuit their faith and give God a hand. So there's three things I want to look at this morning. First is the challenge of waiting for God. Challenge of waiting for God. The second is the temptation to help God out. And the third is the conviction that God knows. The God knows. And so if you uh, are willing to go the journey with me, we're going to have some fun? It's nice. I have 27 pages of notes. Isn't that great? Yes. 
We'll probably get through four. Let's look at the challenge of waiting for God. Verses one and two. Let me read it for you again. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from, have, from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And we'll just stop it right there. See, part of the challenge for us, folks, is that we live in an instant gratification society. So the idea of waiting is foreign to us. We want what we want when we want it. And the, the challenge with that is that it leads to a problem in relationship to faith. Because faith by nature implies waiting. Listen to the definition of faith from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Isn't that horrible? It's the assurance of things hoped for. We don't have them yet. We have to wait for them. And it's the conviction of things not seen. I want to see it now. I'll tell you another secret. There's this marvelous thing called Amazon Prime. Amazon Prime. You want to have anything, anytime you go online, you order it from Amazon Prime. And if you order it before 3 p.m., they guarantee to have it to you the next day. Now, sometimes they don't come through at all. Sometimes it's not just 24 hours you have to wait. Sometimes you have to wait a whopping 48 hours. But that's way better than eBay where you have to wait 36. So we're not given to waiting. And, and by definition, faith means we have to be willing to wait. Faith requires waiting. And, and what's interesting, if you read scripture, there's this disturbing reality that if you do a word study on the word faith, more often than not, in conjunction with the word faith, you'll find the word wait or waiting or waits. It's a word, one of the most recurring words in scripture in relationship to faith. Did you know that? And yet we find that so terribly hard. It poses a problem. And it posed a problem for Abram and Sarai as well. Because God in his sovereignty and his wisdom often, I would actually say mostly, calls us to wait. The truth is waiting reveals a lot about who we are uh, like nothing else will in our lives. It's true for the journey of our faith. You see, waiting does two things that I want to look at this morning. First of all, it tests our character. And secondly, it tests our reason or our thinking. If you read the scriptures, you discover that Abram's life hinged on the promises of God, especially for land and for a son. Last week, we heard in chapter 15 that God made him this promise of, of sons, of, of offspring as numerous as the stars. And then it, God cuts a covenant with him. In the process of waiting on the promises of God, two things took place in Abram and Sarai's life, and they take place in our lives as well when waiting tests our character and our reason. So here's the first thing I discover, that waiting tests our character. I want you to see what happens here in this passage, especially in terms of Sarai's character flaw or what it reveals about her character. Let's look again at verse 1. Look what it says about her. Now, Sarai... Abram's wife had borne him no children. And she had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Now Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant that it may be that I should obtain children by her. And then Abram, uh, it should say in brackets the putts, uh, listened to the voice of Sarai. Now, 
See, Genesis 16 is set in the context of Genesis 15, the promise of a son. But you discover here that Sarai has a, a character flaw or an identity flaw. Sarai identifies with her shame instead of her fame. How many of us do that? Sarah identifies with her shame. See, she was the wife of a patriarch. She was the wife of the first patriarch, Abram. She was the chosen one of God to bring about the lineage of salvation. Now, she didn't know that, but nonetheless, that's who she was. And she interpreted her life circumstances as God's curse rather than God's canvas to effect the miraculous. When you think about it, though, who could blame her? It's been 10 years since Genesis 15. It's amazing how you read scripture, Genesis 15, we move into 16, and you think, oh, it's the next morning. But no, no, a decade has, has lapsed. 10 years since the promise of God to Abram. And Abram is now 85 years old. He is of more mature status. <laughs> Just a reminder, Pastor Elman. And Sarai is also of mature status at 75 years old. I mean, she is well past childbearing years, and her womb remains empty. And in that day, society measured the value of a woman by her ability to produce an heir. So I can imagine how she felt. Month in and month out for 10 years, pining for a child, longing for God's promise to be revealed. But each month, anticipation was dashed by reality. And eventually, hope starts to fade and discouragement takes root. Some of you may know that feeling of wanting a child. And this endless waiting met by disappointment. I do. Sherry and I were married 29 years ago. <laughs> if I say it that way, it sounds like I know how long exactly it's been. Sherry and I were married uh, when we were young and not of mature status. Uh, and uh, we, we thought we had the world by the tail. Uh, I had a, a good corporate job, made a lot of money. Sherry was the executive assistant to a mayor. Uh, we, we had the best life. In our first year of marriage, we built our and paid for our first home. And we decided we were going to establish ourselves before we had kids. Because once you have them, you can't give them back. You can, but they find you again. They're kind of like cats. <laughs> it's true. That's true. I know. So we determined to establish ourselves, and for three years in marriage, we, we set up our, our entire lives. We knew exactly what we were going to do, exactly where we were going to go, and exactly how many kids we were going to have. And then we decided in the third year of our marriage, now is the time for us to have kids. And so while we had been practicing before, now we started to try to have kids. <laughs> and we tried for an entire year to have kids. Um, and at the end of the year, it was like, what's going on? We should have kids by now. And so we went to our doctor and uh, through a whole series of tests and about another year's worth of testing, we discovered that we had a 0.5% chance of having a child. Half a percent chance of ever having a child. Now, I got to tell you, that was not in our plans. Didn't work well with what we had anticipated for our lives and totally out of step what God had for us, at least in our minds. And so we tried all the magic things you do. Back in those days, uh, you didn't have uh, in vitro fertilization. You had a thing called a basal thermometer. Ooh, that leads to romance. And 
<laughs> it was great. Not so much. So entire year we tried again, thinking, okay, you know something, we can beat the odds. You know, 99.5 to, to 0.5, we're in. And it finally came to this point where we realized we're not going to have children. And if I'm honest about it, we weren't good with that. And so I can remember to this day when Sherry and I, I can, I can see it in my mind's eye, when Sherry and I finally came to the end of ourselves and came to the beginning point of God and we got on our knees and we prayed. And we said, Lord, we think you've got this wrong. <laughs> we really did. I think you've got this wrong or we've got it wrong. I don't know, but we think you've got this wrong. We think we'd be fantastic parents. But if that's not what you have for us, we'll figure it out and be faithful to you. Would you allow us the privilege of having a child? The next month, Sherry was pregnant. Yeah, and despite lots of testing and lots of practice, nothing ever since. Now, that was God's grace to us. We felt that pain of not being able to have a child. Over time, in the waiting, Sarai and Abram grew impatient. We waited three years. Well, six for the time, but three years. They've waited for Sarai 75 years. Abram, 85 years. Ten years since God's promise. And over time, in the waiting, Sarai and Abram grow impatient. And impatience and disappointments poisons Sarai's character. And she becomes bitter. And you discover in the passage here that she begins to blame God instead of trusting him and waiting on him. Lewis says in verse 2, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. She, she frames reality in terms of her circumstances or in terms of her disappointment. And she discredits God because she's tired of waiting. She expresses her bitterness, her disappointment, in the strongest terms possible. She uses this phrase, prevented me. Literally, God's held me in bondage or locked me away. Do you get a sense how frustrated she was? See, faith is tested in the waiting. And our character comes under pressure. And as a result, for Sarai, she's left waiting with the feeling that she needs to take matters into her own hands. And how often that's like us. We, I at least, like Sarai, easily become uh, impatient, believing the circumstances and situations of our lives over and above the character and the promises and the purposes and the person of God. See, while Abram and Sarai's situation may not be like ours, many of us wrestle with this impatience as we long for God to act. Perhaps we're in a marriage that seems impossible in the face of a demanding spouse. And we wait, God, when will you move? Or we long for a wayward child to find Jesus and we see no progress. And so we're, we're tempted to give up or to adapt our faith to suit our child. Or maybe you're single and you long for a relationship and you wonder if God has a spouse in mind for you. Or perhaps it's infertility and you long for a child with no effect. Or health in the absence of healing. Or your identity in the context of struggles and physical turmoil. So we find ourselves tested and tried as God invites us to wait. Not for a resolution, but to wait on him. 
trusting that he's faithful, believing he is able, convinced that he knows best, and knowing beyond a shadow of doubt that he is good. And we find that in the process of our waiting, our faith is refined. Where we believe him for the outcome, not necessarily for the answer we want. And there's a big difference. Our faith is often tested when we identify ourselves based on our external circumstances and we're tempted and our character is tested when our identity is defined not by, it's defined by what we are instead of whose we are. Our character is tested when we believe and we give into our circumstances above the promises, the purpose, and the person of God. Uh, 30-some years ago, I started pastoral ministry uh, as a, an intern in church in Victoria. And in those days, it was a church that didn't have a lot. It was fairly small. Uh, we stayed with families. That's kind of how they were able to cover our housing. It was kind of fun for the most part. Some of those people were really weird. But for, for the most part, it was kind of fun. <laughs> and we stayed at the house of one couple, Trevor and June Evans. Uh, they've long since passed and they're now with the Lord because they're of more mature status. <laughs> and we listened to their life story. Trevor and June, when we met them, had been married for 45 years. When they gotten married 45 years earlier, they both were non-believers, but they were madly in love. And about a year into their marriage, uh, June had an encounter with Jesus and her life was radically transformed. She met Jesus and discovered that Trevor was an alcoholic. Uh, she'd known he drank, but he didn't, she didn't realize he was an alcoholic until she discovered who Jesus was. What I discovered about June is that she was a, man of, a woman of great faith who loved Jesus more than her circumstances. And despite Trevor's... Despite... Trevor's alcoholism and the resulting abuse and violence and shouting and, and things that would have driven a lesser person away, June determined to get on her knees and pray for Trevor. Every day, every morning, she would get on her knees and she would ask God to capture Trevor's heart and release him from the demon of alcoholism. June prayed for 40 years. 40 years. And in the 40th year of their marriage, Trevor encountered Jesus. God chose to act 40 years in. The last 10 years, he died in their 50th year of marriage. The last 10 years of their marriage was bliss as Trevor determined that he was going to manifest the grace and love of Jesus to June. Which of us would be up to that. To being so convinced of the power of God to transform a human heart that we would give ourselves to 40 years of prayer to see a loved one redeemed. 40 years, 10 years of bliss. That doesn't sound like a lot of fun. And yet, June is a great example. Trevor is a great example of 
what God can do when we're willing to wait on him. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18 puts it this way. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Isn't that true? That's, that's faith. Here's the second thing I discover in this context, that faith not only tests our character, it also tests our reason or our thinking. Now, Sarah, read it again. Now, Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, that it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And say, Abram, in brackets, the putz, listened to the voice of Sarai. Now, only in this chapter, by the way, the putz. Next chapter, not at all. See, Sarai grows older and, and sadder and more impatient, and soon she feels compelled to act. She becomes convinced that it all depends on her. And she looks for a solution even as she engages her own understanding. She, she reasons that this can't happen. I'm 75. There's not a chance. There's no way I'm going to bear a child. I better find a solution. I, I need to help God out. And what you discover is that she finds a solution in the culture of her day. Sarah, in effect, starts to reason her way to an answer rather than trusting God for a way through her dilemma. And Sarai and Abram look for a way out. See, one of the challenges of faith is simply this, that we often think that God hasn't given us enough information. If we're really going to follow him, he needs to spell it out a little bit more. But here's the reality of God. Sometimes, most of the time, he only tells us what he's going to do, and often in broad brushstrokes, not the detail. Because in the detail comes faith. He doesn't say how or when he's going to act. The hows and the whens and even the why become matters of faith. See, God often chooses to allow us to wait so that there is little, note, little doubt that when he does act, it's really him that has moved. It's nothing we've done ourselves. And we find ourselves in the waiting room that is faith. We discover that human reason is tempted to take over and retool faith or reframe faith to suit our situation or our experiences. We're driven by doubt to, to, to uh, we're driven to doubt the promises of God and the person of God, and in our doubts, we act in desperation. See, in effect, human reason determines to measure, uh, determines the measure of God's character, his care, his understanding, and his ability, and we're all too readily willing to help him out. And this results in a crisis of faith wherein we doubt God and his word and we determine to be masters of our own destiny. And that's what happens with Sarai. Sarai had, tells her God needs some help here. Her reason engages a cultural solution to a spiritual question. And she devises a scheme, a response to, an, to a very difficult reality. Let me read it again. She, at Sarai, had a female Egyptian servant named Hagar. And Sarah said to Abraham, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, that it may be that I shall obtain children by her. That sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? But in the culture of the day, 
The law codes, matter of fact, all of the Near Eastern law code allowed that if a first wife was unable to provide an heir for her husband, and if she had a maidservant, she could give the maidservant to her husband, and any children that the maidservant bore would be accredited to her. Interesting, hey? So she took a cultural truth and made it a spiritual truth. She decided to embrace an acceptable social practice in response to her plight. And how often are we tempted to embrace cultural truths to accomplish spiritual goals? Even as God calls us to trust him in his plan. I see it happen to individuals who are desperate for a partner. And despite the counsel of the people around them who know Jesus, marry a non-believer and ignore the warnings that scripture tells us. Or it happens to a couple who want a child so, so desperately that they'll even engage a surrogate. Or they'll engage in vitro fertilization. Now, I want to be really clear. In vitro fertilization by itself is not unethical. But it comes with huge ethical questions. Because each embryo, each egg that is fertilized has the potential to be a child. I would say is a child. Even if you freeze it. And with in vitro fertilization, you want to get as many fertilized eggs as possible, and you only want to plant a few, what do you do with the rest? Those are huge moral dilemmas. And as Christians, we need to take that seriously. Have, have you watched American Idol? Um, I haven't, but my wife has as I was sitting next to her. On American Idol, there is a young girl who um, is there with her two moms. Have you seen that? Yeah. So one is her, I think her birth mom, uh, and the other is the egg donor mom. And she's there with the two moms. She's only recently come to discover who her egg donor mom was. Uh, and she's discovered all kinds of wonderful things. She went to the same school as her egg donor mom. She sang in the same choir as her egg donor mom. She has a great voice like her egg donor mom. Uh, hello, it's called genetics. Um, and and you, you see these two moms who are with this girl, and you can feel the tension as you watch it. Well, not that I have watched it, but you can feel the tension <laughs> as you watch it. As this egg donor mom is desperate to redeem the lost years. And the birth mom, you can sense, she sit, sits back a little bit more, and she's a little more leery. There are all manner of ethical ramifications for the determinations that we make, even if culture says it's okay. It happens with people who twist scripture to suit their lifestyle. Uh, I, I haven't, I've done a lot of weddings in my day. Uh, in the last 10 years, more frequently, uh, I have found very few couples who have not engaged in sex even Christian couples. And when you challenge, when I challenge them on it, because we do, uh, they say, well, everyone's doing it. It's like, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, well, you know, we need to try it out to see if we're compatible. Uh, that's called marriage. <laughs> and so they, they twist it. And you know, Scripture doesn't actually say you can't do it. Well, I don't know. I'm not sure what Bible you're reading, but... Or what if this person's not my soulmate? We need to test it out to see if they're my soulmate. Here's the reality, folks. There is no such thing as a soulmate other than the Holy Spirit. 
You're complete by yourself in relationship to God. And sometimes he gives you a life partner, a spouse, to walk with you, to work with you, because you need to be shaped and molded all more into the image of Christ. That's really what marriage is about. It happens to people who are in business and are determined to take shortcuts. I mean, we don't have that much time. I got more stuff here. But here's the thing. Every day in life, we're tempted to short-circuit our faith to accomplish what we want to accomplish. And our reason tells us, it finds a way forward. See, waiting tests our character, and waiting tests our reason, and waiting tempts us to give God a hand, because you know he's not capable of doing it on his own. Here's the second point I discovered in the outline. First, it is uh, you know, the temptation of waiting for God or the, the challenge of waiting for God. The second is the temptation to help God out, verses 3 through 6. Now, let's read it again. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she, took, she looked on contempt. Uh, on her, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave you my servant for your embrace, and, you, and when she saw she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. And Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant... Uh, uh, sorry. And Abram, in brackets again, the putz, because here he is, this is a putzy statement on his part. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power... Do to her as you please. Basically, I wash my hands of her. Not my problem. I only slept with her. And then Sarai dealt harshly with her, Hagar, and she fled from her. See, Sarai and Abram determined to give God a hand. And in the process, they make a very wrong decision. And this passage teaches three aspects of decision-making that is outside of God's best for us. Three things that you'll discover if you're moving away and you're short-circuiting your faith. Here's the first thing I discover. That their actions are rooted in pragmatism or expediency. They made a decision not based on what was right or wrong, but they made a decision based on what will work with no sense of asking God for wisdom. There's this wonderful clue in the passage here. See, while to this point, Sarai has not been named as the one who will give birth to a son, every time Sarai is named in Scripture up to this point, so chapter 11, chapter 12, chapter 16, every time she's named, she's named as Abram's wife. There's a clue there. Sarai was Abram's wife. If Abram was going to have a son, it would be through his wife. As a matter of fact, the, the, the writer, Moses, the Holy Spirit, wants us to understand that in three verses, Sarai is named as Abram's wife. In verse 1 and verse 3. Now Sarai, Abram's wife. In verse 3, it says, So after Abram lived 10 years in the land, Sarai, Abram's wife, you get the sense of kind of jumping off the page? See, Sarai is Abram's wife. He has no other. And the inference is clear that it is Sarai, despite her age and fertility, or infertility, that would bear him a son, that God would fulfill his promise. And Sarai readily moves out of God's plan for marriage and embraces a social custom to accomplish God's promise on her own. 
She allowed the circumstances and the reason of her life to overrule God's truth. And she chooses a path of pragmatism or expediency, let's get her done, over and above faithfulness. We tend to live in a pragmatic society, don't we? Do whatever it takes to get it done. If there's an unwanted pregnancy, even with believers, we get abortions. And we frame it in terms of women's rights. Unhappy marriage, I got to get out. And we frame it in terms of happiness or fulfillment. People aren't sure about marriage, they live together. And they frame it in terms of testing the waters. Or gender and sexuality, we frame it in terms of orientation. It is a matter of orientation, by the way. But it's not a matter of gender or identity orientation. It's a matter of spiritual orientation. Who's first in your life? And by taking matters into their own hands, they sought to bring a solution to their angst. And they created more angst. And whenever we put faith on the back burner and apply self-effort, we effectively say, God, I've got this, and we remove him from the equation, and we create the context for chaos. That's what happens here. Here's the second thing I discover, is that their actions are rooted in selfishness. At first glance, Sarai's plan appears to be selfless and sacrificial. She seems concerned to fulfill the promise to her husband, and she seems selfless in sharing her husband with another. How difficult that must have been. And yet, in the passage, you discover that her primary motivator was self-fulfillment. She was self-absorbed. I said earlier, in the ancient Near East, women who were barren were considered disgraced. Women who could not deceive had their identity questioned. And I can imagine for Sarai, her life had been one filled with shame. She had not given Hagar any children. She was barren. But there's this clue here that wants us to understand that her motives were not pure at all. Verse 2 says, go into my servant, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. This phrase, I shall obtain children by her, is an interesting phrase in the Hebrew. See, while the custom of the day was that a slave or a surrogate was acceptable, the wording here strongly suggests that there's way more at play. Literally, it's, it says, where, you know, the phrase, I shall obtain children by her, literally reads this way, then I can be built up. See, the emphasis here is on Sarai's esteem, her social status, and personal gain. Sarai has mixed motives at best. She's self-absorbed, and she wants to, to have her life built up through this slave woman. And who can blame her, right? She should be happy. That's what society tells us. But make no mistake, her determination to short-circuit her faith had more to do with who she was and how she felt than it did to do with, with God and a determination to be sacrificial. And isn't that the case with us so often? We make decisions and we think they're pure, and yet there's this motive underneath that drives us to get what we want. Friends, we do well to test our motives before we move into action. I'm not saying don't move into action. I'm saying make sure your motives are pure. Here's the third thing I discovered in this thing, that Sarah and Abram's actions were at the expense of another. Hagar simply becomes a means to an end, 
an object to be used. Throughout the passage, Abraham and Sarai never name Hagar. Did you notice that? They objectify her. They call her the servant. They refer to her by her label, and in the process, they can depersonalize her to get what they want from her. And it's true, they did follow the social conventions of their day, and in the process, they used her to obtain their goal. But you discover here that there's no consideration for the implications of Hagar or Ishmael. There's no consideration of her life or her value as a person. And you discover as you read the passage, it's interesting that Moses names her. And the angel of the Lord, we'll get to that in a minute, the pre-incarnate Jesus calls her by name, but not Sarai and Abram. She is chattel to be used. She's nothing more than a commodity to be abused. She wasn't a person who was valued and should be engaged. That was a really good indicator for us folks when we're making decisions and they're outside or they're short-circuiting faith. We need to ask the question, is there collateral damage? Am I willing to get what I want regardless of the fallout? Because it's easy to objectify others to get what we want, to disregard what the fallout of our actions will be to achieve our goals, to pretend that everything's okay when we use and abuse others, to explain our actions away as, an, as a way to justify the means. The ends always justifies the means, don't they? We think they do. When tempted to act as we live out our faith, we do well to consider others and to ask the question, what are the implications to the people around me if I do this thing? To put others first, as scripture would teach us, and to allow God to champion our cause. Regardless of how we feel or what we think, to apply faith to the situations of our lives, living in the truth of God rather than the reason of the moment. Here's the third thing I discover in this, sec this section, that our actions often cause relational strife when they're outside of the will of God. Alexander Pope has this wonderful phrase. Uh, it says, to err is human. Have you heard that phrase? One commentator I read says, yes, that's true. To err is human, but to really screw things up is a human specialty. You discover here, and it's often true in our lives, that short-circuiting our faith leads to a relational strife. Abraham abdicates responsibility and gives in to Sarai. He obeyed Sarai's voice. By the way, it's the same phrase that's used when Adam gives in to Eve. Isn't that interesting? Abraham takes Sarai to bed, and in the process, he short-circuits his faith. He moves outside of God's plan, doing it on his own. Hagar conceives, and she despises Sarah. She gloats over her. Sarai blames Abram and calls God to judge between the two of them. Isn't that ironic? This false spirituality. Abraham abdicates responsibility a second time and, and says, hey, it's not my problem. Do what you want with her. And Sarai abuses Hagar mercilessly to the point where it's better to run away into the desert than it is to stay and experience the abuse. See, this is the way of sin. When we're tempted to do it on our own. Sin makes this great promise. If you simply short-circuit your faith, you'll get what you want. But sin never tells you about the drawbacks or the consequences. Sin is like one of those 30-second infomercials. Have you seen those for, you know, for drugs or whatever? 
It's two seconds on how good this drug is and 28 seconds on all the side effects. But the music is just loud enough that you can't hear what the guy's saying. And the pictures of people dancing in the field are so inviting, right? You know, the, the, the side effects go things like, uh, including death, diarrhea, vomiting, heart attack, and hemorrhoids. <laughs> right? It's like, oh, wow, hemorrhoids, that's not good. <laughs> But here's the thing about sin, it doesn't tell us about the side effects. It just tells us about how good things are. And the effects of sin in this passage is that Hagar has a false pride, Sarai has a false blame, and Abram has failure or false neutrality. The result of a wrong decision led to a disaster. If I had more time, I, I would talk to you about uh, Ishmael and his descendants. We don't have time for that. What are you doing? Okay, good. Then I'm not worried about it. Eldon asked if I would preach five minutes longer than he does so it doesn't feel like he's preaching long next time. <laughs> Isn't that what you said? I think so. I think so too. At least in my mind, that's what he said. And I like the things that my mind tells me. Anyways, look at verses 7 through 15. This is the final point for me. The conviction that God knows. Can, can I read it to you? Do we have time? Are we doing okay? Yes. You're not bored to tears? No. I would be if I was listening to me, but here we go. Okay, verses 7 through 15. Listen to this, and then I'll point out uh, three major, four major points. The angel of the Lord found her, that is Hagar, by a string of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant to Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. Maybe I'll just leave it there and we'll press on. Here's the first thing that I know that God wants us to know. These are foundational spiritual truths that if you want to have a conviction or want to live out your faith or work through the waiting, these are some things you need to know. Foundational truth number one, that God knows us intimately. God knows us intimately. Verses seven through nine. I want you to catch the irony here. Abram and Sarah regard Hagar as chattel. She's the servant. But God calls a foreign, lost, and rebellious slave woman by name. Do you have a sense that God is seeking her out here? He calls her by name. It says in verse, uh, verse 8, Hagar. He calls her by name. This is the only, the only known incident in all of East, uh, Near Eastern literature, the only one where a deity, where God, addresses a woman by name. And the point is there for us to understand that if God is willing to seek out the estranged person who knows nothing about who he is in a faraway place where her, her spirit is so far away from her that she has no hope unless God reaches out to her, then God knows you too. If God knows the name of a wayward slave, he knows your name too. If you ever doubt that God knows you by name, Hagar is here to tell you, oh no, he does. He knew me. The second thing I discover is that he recounts her circumstances. See, God knows us intimately. He recounts her circumstances. He says, Hagar, and then he names who she is or, or her life circumstance. Hagar, servant of Sarai. 
He knows all too well the challenges of her life. He's exceedingly aware that what she's been through and the chaos that she's experienced, the difficulty that she's known, and how horrible Sarai has been to her. And the point is simply this, that if God knows the circumstances of Hagar, he knows your situation too. If you ever doubt if God knows your circumstances or the trouble you're in, Hagar is proof that he does. The third thing that tells me that he's intimately acquainted with who we are is that he, he knows every detail of her life. There's this wonderful question in here, uh, verse 7. Where have you come from and where are you going? Actually, verse 8. Where have you come from and where are you going? Her life is going nowhere fast. The angel of the Lord has zoomed in on Hagar. She's fleeing to the one place she knows she can go, back down to Egypt. Shur is on the border of Egypt. She's in the desert. There's nothing around. And this hopeless and helpless woman in the middle of the wilderness discovers that God knows exactly where she's at and he's offering to direct her if she'll only listen. So the angel of the Lord has no trouble finding her and he invites her to evaluate what her life will be like. Where have you come from and where are you going? It's a rhetorical question. See, the intimate details of our direction are no less known to God. He invites us to ask, where have I come from? And God, where am I going? And Sarah only gives a partial answer. She says, I, I'm fleeing. I have no sense of direction. I just got to get away from what I'm experiencing. And God calls her to stop the running and to return. And you'll discover that in your, your challenging life situation, more often than not, that's what God will ask you to do. To stop running and to return trusting him. Are you, where are you running? Why are you running? Return. And that's what happens here. There's, there's this command from the angel of the Lord to return and submit. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur, and he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And then it simply says this. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. What a hard direction. But the journey of faith is not an easy journey. And sometimes the direction from God is a difficult direction. Return and submit. It should cause us to pause. It caused Hagar to pause. And invites us to go back to the crucible of faith. See, sometimes God calls us to persevere in difficult situations because his purposes and his plans are incomprehensible and above what we can understand. God invites us to trust him, to return and submit, even in the face of adversity. He reminds us of his grace and his goodness if we will listen and we will lean into his character, his provision, and his promise. God knows him. Here's the second thing. God hears our hearts cry. The angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. By the way, same thing Gabriel said too. You will be pregnant and bear a son to who? Mary. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. Did you catch that? Call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened. The Lord has listened to your affliction. 
There's this profound spiritual truth here that God listens to us even and especially when life is hard. Ishmael means God hears. He hears, he listens, he understands. And by the way, it's in the perfect tense. Isn't that beautiful? The perfect tense. You're looking at me like, I haven't got a clue what you're talking about. I do because I took notes. The perfect tense means this, that God hears us in the past, even before we speak. And it applies to the present, even as we're wrestling through life's circumstances. And it's faithful to the future. He'll continue to listen to us all the time. Isn't that the most marvelous thing? To know that God hears us? It literally means to have heard completely, to have heard wholly, to lack nothing. The idea here is simply this, that God hears our hearts cry in all situations. We often say, I don't think God hears me or is listening to me. Nope, that's not true. He does. He hears you and he understands it well. He hears in a perfect and a complete way and he invites you to trust him even when he seems silent. Just because he doesn't speak doesn't mean he doesn't hear. One of the most amazing things about God is that he hears us intimately and completely and he knows us in our circumstances and he's not indifferent to them and yet sometimes he calls on us to wait on him even in the difficulty. But if we could fully embrace this truth that God knows us and that he hears us, we would be less inclined to short-circuit our faith when we are in the waiting and feel anxious. Third thing I discover is this, that God hears us or sees us in our humble estate. Verses 13 and 14, and I'll I'll close with this except for one more. (laughs) Told you, 29 pages. Not really 29. So, So she, that is Hagar called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, I have been seen. I have seen him who looks at me. Verse 13. Verse 14. Therefore, the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. Again, this is amazing. Hagar is the only person in all of scripture to give God a name. And what name does she give him? You're the God who sees me. Elroy literally means the God who sees me. And by the way, it's in the perfect tense again. That God sees us, it's a completed action, having happened in the past, but being applicable to the present and into the future. The God who sees us completely, wholly, fully, nothing is hidden from him. And what I find amazing here is that Hagar finds great hope, not in the promises of God, which follow, but in the character of God. She finds strength in knowing that God knows her intimately, that God hears her completely, and that God sees her absolutely. And she puts her faith in the person of God instead of the promises. And so she called in the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are the God of seeing. For she said, truly I have seen him who looks after me. Truly I've seen him who looks after me. There's this wonderful wordplay in the Hebrew Uh, The phrase can mean, and usually does mean, the God who sees me, or the God who sees. But it can also mean the God that I see. And I think it's a deliberate wordplay here. It reflects two sides of the same coin of faith. The first speaks of God's care for Hagar, his care for us. He sees us. He knows our situations. He knows our circumstances intimately. 
And only when we understand the fullness of God, how, how God knows us so completely, do we have a hope of experiencing his character and allowing him to, to reveal himself to us, even in the midst of our struggles. Herein lies the fullness of faith, to be convinced that God knows you so fully that even in the difficult seasons of faith, you can see him at work. As you trust on him, not for the outcome, but for his faithfulness and character. I said earlier that he invites us to obedience, submission, and he does in verse 9. Just as with Hagar, God invites us to return and submit, to return to our faith, trusting him for the outcomes, to submit in our circumstances, knowing he is sovereign, and to live convinced that he knows us intimately, that he hears us completely, and he sees everything about who we are. And in the process, he invites us to walk by faith, not by sight, and in doing so, to resist the temptation to short-circuit God. That's the lesson we learn. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your grace to us, your mercy, your love. And we confess that there are times when we are in situations where it seems impossible. And we wonder, Lord, when will you act? And it's in those moments that you call us to trust in your character, that you know us intimately, you call us by name, you know the circumstances we find ourselves in, and you invite us to reorient our lives in keeping with who you are. That you hear us when we cry out to you. You are fully acquainted with our situation. And that you see us. And not only do you see us, you allow us to see you when we trust you in faith and believe that you are greater than the circumstances we find ourselves in. So Lord, would you help us to learn how to not short-circuit our faith and how to live fully convinced in your grace, I pray in Jesus' name.